The Money Show. Personal Finance with Warren Ingram. Warren Ingram is Executive Director at Galileo Capital. He is also a personal financial advisor and a chartered financial analyst and planner, 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 financial planner. Uh, please, will you ask Warren if there's a benefit in one owning physical gold or silver? What are the benefits? Asks Rob. Warren, I'm asking. Any benefits of holding physical gold or silver? I guess if the world uh, and uh, the financial system comes to an end and there's no method of of being able to transact with each other with with uh, electronic money anymore uh, and uh, and our notes are worthless then then possibly physical gold or silver might become a, a method of transaction but uh, but but to me an extremely inefficient one because you're going to have to carry all this stuff around with you all the time and stop other people from robbing you etc so so <laughs> I'm 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 not convinced that for for most of us in our day to day lives that um, gold or silver in physical form are extremely helpful. You know, and I think if you do find some of the you know kind of world's really wealthy will store some gold and silver and and some other precious metals and and gems in in safes and vaults. And I know a lot of South Africans like their Krugerrands, but but for me, you know, it doesn't really generate uh, interest or dividends or rent or anything. And and so. Uh, I, I think it's really for the doomsday preppers and the collectors and, and for the rest of us, many better forms of investments than physical gold or silver. There we go, Robert. We're not going to spend any more time on it. Emotions, emotions, emotions. We've all had a few. Uh, Warren Ingram, do talk to me about <laughs> emotions and money. When markets are going up, inflation is non-existent and interest rates are low Everybody feels like a genius because generally you start seeing economies performing very well. You start seeing jobs being created. You start seeing more people being hired. You see very positive forecasts about the future. And then you go through times like we're in at the moment and nothing feels good. Nothing feels right. Nobody is clever. Everyone's a bleeding idiot. And it's the beginning of the end of the world. Um, And... uh, I don't know if it's possible to avoid the highs and lows of emotion when it comes to money. I agree. I don't. I don't think it's it's possible to 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 not feel the emotion or or, or to be robotic about it. Uh, you know, I think we we you know um, the, the psychologists have studied this stuff, and we kind of get uh, much more depressed and um, you know about losing a hundred bucks than we do get excited about about making a hundred bucks. So unfortunately, we tend to feel the losses and the, and the negativity much more than we feel the, the the gains and the positive side. But 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 the truth is, we have to find ways um, as investors and and uh, you know whether you're professional or private investors, we're all investors. We all need to make money and and one day try and live off our money but we we need to find ways to manage our emotions and and maybe to take emotions out of our thinking when it comes to kind of long-term strategic decision making you know i think it's okay to kind of go home and you know kick a boxing bag or you know mow the lawn or whatever it is that you want to do to to release the emotions go for a run that's what i do but but uh, when you sit down to kind of think about your your long-term investment decision making that then you need to become as robotic as possible uh, and and as rational as possible and and try and leave your emotions at the door because unfortunately uh, emotions are extremely expensive when it comes to making investment decisions we're we're just not programmed as human beings to make smart sensible rational long-term decisions 
when our fight or flight uh, kind of impulses are, are, are firing at maximum uh, kind of efficiency. You know, th- those fight or flight impulses are really good for keeping us out of life and death situations. But unfortunately, they override all logic and reason w- when it comes uh, to making good investment decisions. So you're right, Bruce. I think it's it's really hard to to not be emotional. But but I think you need to develop a you know kind of a, a methodology for for avoiding uh, okay. emotional decision making. How then? What is the methodology? What is the thinking? How do we? As we're sitting down, we're about to sign a mandate. We're about to commit extra money in our direct debit because we had a small salary increase and we're going to put half of that salary increase extra into our savings. All of the things you keep teaching us to, and, and telling us to do. Yet we sit there and we go, this war in Ukraine is going to drag on for longer than we thought. The Chinese interest in Taiwan is just too scary. The U.S. tech bubble has burst again. I don't see any economic growth coming out of Europe anytime soon. I'm worried about the recovery in China and the draconian nature of leadership in that economy. I don't like what's happened in Hong Kong. I'm worried that that, uh, that uh, Joe Biden and Donald Trump go head-to-head in America next year. I'm worried that Erdogan wins again in Turkey. I'm worried that Britain's health service falls over and that affects the stability of the UK. I'm worried about Julius Malema becoming the ah, all of the things that can go wrong and quite understandably all of those are possible scenarios and you expect me to abandon emotion and invest into that catastrophic mess so so let's let, let's let's not deal with each of those individually no but, no but please maybe, no because we'll be here for months well, put them in a bucket and 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 then i'll ask you one question which is uh what what impact uh, can you have on any of those events None. And this is why it's out of my control. And this is why I need to avoid being involved in it because it's just I can't control it. It's beyond my control. And and I think it's a, it's a, it's um, fascinating, you know, to have these conversations now because we're having them all the time, all of us, you know, all, all around the country, and spending enormous amounts of energy on on stuff which we frankly just can't control. And and more to the point, we can't predict what, what what's going to happen. We can't predict any kind of an outcome in this. You, you know, when you look at all of those things you've mentioned, all of them are scary. All of them are are worrying. Uh, the, the truth is, we 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 can try and prescribe or ascribe a, a certain probability to it. So we could say, well, I think there's a ninety percent chance that uh, Biden and Trump go head to head. Well, okay, so let's assume you were right. Now you have to try and forecast how investors are going to deal with that, and and then you're going to have to try and forecast how investors deal with the outcome of whatever that election actually, you know, w- what the outcome of that election is. All of those are, are variables upon variable variables, variables. Sorry, that uh, just eventually take you down a rabbit hole that you just will never get out of. So, 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 uh, trying to forecast all these things and trying to predict all of them and getting too worried about them uh, it just leads you nowhere. And and the, to me, that the, the decision making is. Uh, we, we've we've seen world markets and and global economies and and socio political events that are similar to this hundreds of times in the last two three hundred years, and amazingly, stock markets and investment markets. Where, where before there were stock markets, you know, there were investment markets, and amazingly, they tend to do well 
over decades, uh, irrespective of all the things that people worry about, irrespective that of lousy politicians. The point. Thank you, Warren. Because, I mean, that is the point, isn't it? Um, you know, you, you look at, and I, I do love the graphs that some of the asset managers produce from time to time, um, and they um, show you over generally long periods of time that suit them best. But uh, they'll go from the bottom left corner to the top right corner and then plot along a timeline this happened here, this happened here, the catastrophe at Sharpville, um, the arrest of Nelson Mandela, the uh, state of emergency, the assassination of Chris Harney, the global financial crisis. That's always quite a biggie. Um, Then COVID as another biggie. But we look at it in the fullness of time and you suddenly realize that nothing actually matters. (laughs) Even 9-11, the dot-com bubble bursting. If you are sensibly invested and not taking enormous great punts on indiv- you know putting betting your your house or your farm on a single stock you're not putting everything into nuspat you're not putting everything into 10 cent you're not putting everything into one bet you are actually fairly well insulated against some of the wildest vacillations of human beings impact on the world over extended periods of time yeah, so I, I did a, a calculation today, you know, because it's public holiday, I've got nothing better to do. So I, I decided to do some number crunching. Uh, and and I looked at uh, if if South Africans had invested, uh, you know, in the average balanced fund um, 20 years ago, put 100,000 rand in there, what would we have today? And your, your 100,000 rand okay, today... No, no, hold on. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let me, let me see if I can get this. Okay, so this is 20 years ago. So that will be 2,000... And four, the South African economy is growing at 5% in those days, and it grows at really 4 or 5% up until 2008. We have the calamity. We have the recovery. We go through the state capture years and the Zuma years. We go through COVID. That 100,000 rand today is worth, I don't want to be ridiculous about this, but 562,407 rand and 28 cents. I don't know, but over half a million rand. A million, a million and 54. I was halfway there. Okay, you were you were halfway, and and so you know, put a hundred thousand rand in. Take all the things that you've just spoken about. You know, the rand was I think at about yeah. five rand or something. You know, then think about it now and all the things that have happened. Your 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 hundred thousand rand has gone to you know it's ten times basically. It's ten times its money, uh, and and you've done nothing. You you bought the average fund. You haven't bought the best one, the worst one. You haven't decided to go all to cash because you're really worried, you know, in the middle of the financial crisis, you haven't gone 100% to shares, you know, when when things recovered, you've just sat there and done absolutely nothing. And what you've, what you've really done in essence is owned a basket of investments that include shares, they include properties, they include uh, government bonds, corporate bonds, they've got some cash, they've got some local and they've got some global. And you've just sat back and, and, and done nothing. And, and that's the return that you get for doing nothing. And, and, and I think you're kind of getting the hint now, you know, when times are volatile, do nothing because that's probably going to make you much more money than doing something. And doing something costs South Africans about in this scenario costs them about 250,000 rand at that, at the end of that uh, 20 year period. That, that's the cost of our behavior when we buy investments like balanced unit trusts and we decide to chop and change because when we do that we actually end up doing it universally at a very bad time we sell high um and then we 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 end up buying even higher and and then everything falls apart and then we sell incredibly low and that that's kind of the behavior that we've got as human beings because of these emotions so doing nothing gets you to a million bucks 
uh, acting and and you know listening to everyone's input and making big decisions and being very dramatic about how you're going to chop and change and with all the forecasts and the bad news that everyone throws you know shoves down your throat you're going to end up with about 750,000 rand no, not you know not not uh, not a bad return but but it's a huge cost for doing something for for being active and and it's a human instinct to be active and and, and I guess my message then is Sometimes when you've got a good mix of assets doing nothing, you know, kind of just shutting down the emotions and listening to it as you would if you were sitting on, on you know, the moon or Mars uh, would help you a lot. But, but, but try not to make predictions and try not to get involved in, in decision making until everything's OK again. Then perhaps review when your emotions are calm and markets are OK again and economies are OK again and all the bad things you've been worried about have passed. Then you can say, well, let me review my strategy. Uh, perhaps it's time to change. But don't change in peak emotion, whether it's you know peak euphoria or peak pessimism, which I agree we're in it now, uh, because most likely you're probably in the right place. You just need to wait and be patient. Easier said than done, though, Warren. I mean, you deal with the psychology of money each and every single day. You've got people who no doubt um, are emotional about their money, people who have perhaps <laughs> stopped working, who um, who don't have the, the comfort of knowing there is ongoing income to, to live off while markets sort themselves out. These are people who are going to be dependent on that amount of money that they've got. They need it to grow in value so that they could draw down some of it over an extended period of time. Yep, you're, you're right, and you know it's not uh, it's not just kind of you know uh, um, thoughtless words that we kind of sprouting on the radio, hoping you know hoping to get some listens. We're we're trying to uh, you know impart uh, in some instances decades of of research, learning, experience, you know m- maybe centuries of research in, into this, and, and hoping that people listen, you know, at, at the time when they need to hear it most, which is exactly that group you're just just speaking about now you know the people that are sitting uh, at home living off their their asset base with little ability to generate new income because they've stopped work or they can't work you know we're really talking to you now and to say just just stay the course just stay with it we're not just saying the stuff uh, because it's fun to say or, or you know we, we we've got nothing else to do this is this is really for your benefit we want you to listen and learn and uh and get to the good outcome, get to the million rand after 20 years and not the 750,000. Now, an email from Donovan and Sally. We need your insights, please. We'll be turning 60 in two years. We plan to retire at that time. We have a nice home, but it's too big for a retired couple. We plan to sell it and go for something lower maintenance and running costs. We will lower the, This will lower the income we need in retirement and put some extra cash in the bank. We're not sure if we should move into a retirement village or just buy a smaller house elsewhere. What do you think we need to do to, what do you think we need, what do you need, what do we need to think about? Oh my goodness me, it's late. To make a good decision. Is renting a good option for retired people? What an interesting thought. Warren? Uh, I think there are a couple of big, big questions there. So one, you know, downscaling your your house and and reducing your cost of living, uh, you know, at the right time is is critical. So I think you, you know uh, where, where you are in a position to to sell and spend less on maintenance and 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 rates and all those things. I think that's an incredibly good decision, and you should do that as fast as possible. If you haven't made up your mind in terms of you know, actually moving into retirement village and 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 the like, then taking time, you know, by, by moving into a rented property for you know a year or two or three, 
uh, to me makes a lot of sense while, while you figure these things out. You know, I don't think you, you you need to kind of rush from, you know, the house you've lived in for the last 20 years and then, you know, immediately buy in a retirement village and then realize you absolutely hate it or, you know, or conversely, you move to some tiny little village because that's, you know, th- that's what everyone else is doing and you hate that even more. Uh, I think, you know, um, renting w- when you are able to do so makes sense because, you know, you can pack up at the end of that lease and 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 move along and, and make some informed decisions. Uh, moving into retirement village, I think, you know, for some people, that's an abhorrent concept. You know, they, they, they have this kind of image that it's, you know, a, a self, self-created prison. Um, I think, you know, nowadays you kind of get, you know, beautiful retirement villages, which are no different to any other estate. Um, and I think the thing to, to factor in there is, you know, how, how soon would you need something like frail care? You know, how, how important is, is kind of guaranteed access to healthcare when you need it most? Because, you know, that, that's a real, uh, a real problem. You know, p- people who are elderly and live in a, in a normal home, not in a retirement village, um, you, you know, when that, when something happens to them, and they need to get into frail care with urgency. Uh, one thing you'll find is, you know, good frail care is extremely rare, and and there are massive waiting lists. And and then, you know, being in a retirement village where you've got guaranteed access to to frail care that you've already checked out yourself uh, w- would be a real blessing. So, you know, I, I think it's it's you know, health and longevity are big issues there, and the, the probability that you know you know that if you know you're going to have health issues or or you already have them, that then perhaps you know moving into retirement villages yeah. is, is really Really prudent and doing it when you can, when you decide the, under your control. The critical issue here is they're 60. And 60, 20 years ago, 60 was very old. <laughs> Talking, yeah. Suddenly, you know, it doesn't seem that old anymore. Um, and it's not old. It was never old. Um, but, and you know, people are living healthier, longer lives, better health care, better everything. And and so you've got more options open to you. And I don't think you need to get wedded to any one of those particular strategies anytime soon. So it is a time, I think, to experiment a little, as you suggest, Warren, with with rental. What about rental in perpetuity? I mean, so often, and I think we've got a minute to just touch on this, rental is cheaper than owning in many cases. Uh, is yep. rental preferable uh, or less secure? Perhaps maybe you don't want to be have the vulnerability of a landlord when you're 87 and you're suddenly getting chucked out of your house because your landlord has decided they want to live in it, for example. Yeah, uh, uh, kind of speaking my language, I, I, I can't uh, emphasize enough in a strong enough that I would love to be a tenant for the rest of my life and never own a property again. Uh, I think, uh, you know, um, doing your due diligence on your landlord and forming a great relationship with a good landlord who wants tenants for decades uh, is, is the way to go. But but for other people, owning a property and owning their home is is kind of a source of emotional security and, and good luck to them. But, but I think owning, uh, sorry, renting in perpetuity is really not a bad idea for a lot of people and and the insecurity of a landlord moving you, you you can compensate for that by doing due diligence on landlords that you know own a few properties that want good tenants that do this as kind of a business uh you know you don't just have to you know imagine that only one kind of landlord exists and that's the one that's going to kick you out in a year's time you know there are lots of great landlords with great relationships with tenants for decades Warren Ingram, I think it's time to revisit that is a topic one of these days as well in, in terms of the sense of owning versus renting. Good debate. Thank you, Warren Ingram. Co-founder, director at Galileo Capital, personal financial advisor, Warren Ingram, on a Thursday night.